Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. The story goes that in the year 860, the Chuds, the Slavs, the Krivichians, and the Ves, people who live in what we now know as Russia, had fallen out among themselves, needed somebody to rule them. So they turned to the Vikings. Our land is great and rich, they supposedly said, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. And the person who accepted that offer was a man called Rurik, one of three brothers, Rurik, Sinius, and Truvor. Very close to Trevor, weirdly. Rurik. <laughs> you, you couldn't take a Viking chieftain. <laughs> Seriously, Trevor. Trevor. Rurik established himself in a place which we now know as Novgorod, and his successors later moved to Kiev. And it's from that story that the countries of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine all trace their history. Tom, we did the um, origins of the Vikings in the East yesterday. Do you think there's any truth to this story at all? Well, I think um, the obvious parallel with this, uh, if you are um, in Britain, is is with the Dukes of Normandy, which likewise has a kind of almost mythic origin story. So Rollo. it's Rollo uh, who is given this land by uh, by the Frankish king, and all kinds of myths surround this figure. Uh, yeah. I mean, he he probably existed, but he probably it, wasn't called Rollo, though, was he? No. Um, um, Tom Shippey, in his book about the Vikings, calls him Ganga Rolf, um, <laughs> which I think is a much better name. Uh, yes, um, and all kinds of and so there are all kinds of stories about how he he founds Normandy and about how the original Normans are not just Vikings, but they're people from you know all, all kinds of different backgrounds, um, and he establishes this uh, this duchy and um, the question of whether. You know, William the Conqueror, the most famous of the Dukes of Normandy. Um, is he a Viking? Is he French? Uh, you know, what is he exactly? I think that that sheds a kind of really interesting light on the process of state formation uh, in Novgorod, but even more particularly in Kiev. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the background to this, uh, as in the West, so in the East, it's about the way that the Vikings are moving into strange lands, as establishing Viking polities, that nevertheless take on the lineaments of the lands and the cultures and the peoples that they're settling among. Well, that's a very controversial subject, though, isn't it? Because how much that's the case is kind of bitter, has been bitterly contested by academics. How, how Viking are they? For those people who didn't listen to yesterday, I can't believe there was anybody who didn't listen to yesterday's podcast. But we did the sort of first hundred years, so um, the Vikings have been what we. Th I mean, Vikings is actually the wrong word because they're not really the Rus. Yeah, the raiding, the Rus, as they the rowers, um, have been coming largely from Sweden down the rivers from the Baltic and establishing this trading network 
which is going to start to take on, as Tom said, it's not just the lineaments of the culture around it, but the lineaments of a state. And how, how yeah. quickly it does that is, is again, debatable. So the sort of origin story that's told is that the, which is very flattering, by the way, to the Scandinavian self-esteem, it's a, you could say as a kind of slightly colonial story, is that the surrounding peoples are so shambolic and kind of disorganized and backward. They are falling out among themselves, and they have to ask the Vikings, the Rus, to come in and, and rule them. And there might be some element of truth in that. Don't you think, Tom, that they that they might, you know, appeal to these armed guys in their trading posts to come and help them against a rival clan or a rival tribe and and that's how it starts do you think well i think it's it's failing the kind of the brute process by which i think pretty clearly what happens is that you you as we said in the, the early episode you know these to begin with are trading ventures and so you have to have transit posts you have to have places where you can not just um do deals, not just store things ready for when the rivers become navigable, but also to kind of pick up information. You know, you, yeah. you can't survive without that. Uh, and we drew the parallel yesterday with um, trading posts in, say, Canada in uh, the 18th century. Um, but it's pretty clear that, that that before long, these transit posts become forts. Yeah, wooden and, forts. Basically. And once they've become forts, then you can do what the Vikings are doing in in um, in the West as well which is basically to kind of set up protection rackets. So what's been a cartel becomes a kind of mafia-style operation. Yeah. Uh, and you're charging protection money. Uh, and if Rurik existed, uh, and there is a kind of historically tested Rurik at around this time, I think, it, uh, tested in Scandinavia. But yeah, that's right. whether it's the same in person Sweden, or not I think. Is, is debated. But um, but if he existed, I think you could imagine him as the kind of the equivalent of a mafia boss. Um, yeah. And then... Uh, you know, again, as as happens in 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 the West, Normandy being the obvious example, um, a kind of uh, a protection racket becomes a state. Well, let's. So we know so little about Rurik. We know that he established himself in in Novgorod, which we talked about yesterday, uh, and there's a statue of him to this day. In, and this is uh, the second half of the ninth century. Yeah, this is uh, was eight sixty, I think it is. Is it? Yeah, yeah eight, about eight sixty to eight sixty two are the, are the dates given. In the, so, by the way, we haven't really talked about sources. This is coming from a, an incredible source called the Russian Primary Chronicle, which is, as is so often the way, written <laughs> in the twelfth century. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Written at least 200, 300 years later um, by a monk called Nestor, I think, and you know, is is written in very different kind of political and cultural circumstances. So we, as with so much of yeah. early medieval history, we just don't know whether these are legends, whether there is a, a grain of truth in them, uh, whether it's retrospective kind of legitimizing. I think there must be a grain of truth because I think that the, the idea of, of a kind of dynastic descent from Rurik becomes quite important. So, you know, if Rurik didn't exist, someone of the same name must have. But yeah, Well, someone of the same, but, but the whole thing, Rurik and two brothers... Yeah, I mean, maybe that not the two of, brothers, all that, all that sort of stuff. But Trevor. there's clearly a, 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 a dynasty establishes itself in Novgorod, yeah, that will then expand. Yeah, so there's two guys who are. It says in the Russian Primary Chronicle, two men who do not belong to Rurik's kin, but were boyars. That's the kind of Russian. They are basically um, captains. I don't know what the word is. Uh, they're not nobles. I mean, nobles is the wrong word, but they're sort of they're they're, they're, they're members of the gang. Would you say soldiers? Is, yeah. I guess is what Mafia knows. Yeah. yeah, and they basically go off. They're called in 
the the Russian Primary Chronicle has them as Askold and Deer. And as with so many of these names, almost all the names we're talking about, they're they're Slavicized versions of originally Norse names, aren't they? Because I think they were Huskulda and Duri, uh, the original, my beautiful, yeah, absolutely yeah, impeccable old Norse pronunciation there, Tom, I hope you noticed. They go off down the Dnieper and they come to what they the Chronicle says is a city on a hill. Again, a little bit too kind of folktale stroke biblical, I think. For but anyway, this place is Kiev, and it already exists, uh, been set up by somebody called Key. Hence <laughs> um, <laughs> the and name. Ev. Yeah, <laughs> and Askol and Deer supposedly settle in Kiev and say this is a great place. I mean, obviously it's a good place because it's further down the river, or further yeah, towards uh, Constantinople. So it kind of makes sense that they've established another fort, stroke trading station. That becomes their own little polity. And so the question of whether Kiev is Viking, which, you know, Putin's been worrying about this. So it's it's a topical question. But again, would you, would you think that maybe, you know, there'd be a parallel perhaps with York? Jorvik. Uh, you know, it's it's a pre-existing settlement, uh, gets taken over by the Vikings, gets a Viking name. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vikings rule it and then they gradually get absorbed into the fabric of, of what, we, you know, returns to being an English city. That perhaps there's... I, I, I mean, the parallels are never exact, but there's something there yeah. of what's well, happening I mean, in, I in, think in, in the East with, as well as the West. Your parallel with Normandy was a really good one. I think to people at the time, sort of ninth, 10th century people, our attempts to fix labels on them would seem weird, wouldn't they? They would yeah. say, well, who cares? I mean, what, what, what's it to you? What ethnicity? The, the concept wouldn't make an enormous amount of sense to them. So the question of, you know, are they Slavs, are they Scandinavian, are they Russians, Ukrainians? I mean, in a sense, it, they're, they're, it's a very, very anachronistic question. I mean, what matters to them is who's who's got the, the weapons, the power, the money. What they are the is shots. lads. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute lads. And they are, but I don't think they're the Bullingdon lads, Tom. I think <laughs> no, they're much more. No, they're much more predatory and brutal. Because yeah. they, um, so, so um, Askold and Deer, they're these pair of kind of Viking adventurers, um, the kin of Rurik, his descent, you know, his his heirs, if they exist, they're moving in, yeah, and they're they're like the kind of you know the the, the bigger crime family moving in, and they they take over Kiev, and Kiev opens up the access to the Black Sea, and beyond the Black Sea lies Miklagard, Constantinople, yeah, which we haven't talked about at all, which is enjoying a. It's a renaissance, isn't it? We're in the Mas- are we not in the Macedonian renaissance at this point, Tom? So things, um, yeah, things are things are looking up for the Byzantines. But, yeah, so they, they they still think of themselves as Romans, don't they? They, do. they still yeah, call well, they, themselves yes. the Romani. Um, they yeah. are they absolutely think we are Rome. We are the and they have this massive city. They have tons of money. They're a very rich and sophisticated culture. And then one day in the year eight sixty, they they kind of look out of the window and these. <laughs> As you said, these lads, lads. <laughs> in their turned, ships <laughs> have turned up in their in their ships, and um, the 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 patriarch, the Archbishop of Fot- of Constantinople, a man called Photius, has written this famous description of this. He says, "The uh, Rus are an obscure nation, a nation of no account, a nation ranked among slaves, unknown, which has won a name from their expedition against us." So basically. Well, the shocking thing for the people of Constantinople is that these utter nobodies who they regard as so far beneath them turn up and and um, besiege their city. And they keep doing this, don't they? Uh, and they, they, they seem to have very good intelligence because they invariably turn up when the imperial fleet is away. 
Yeah, or the emperors um, off campaigning against yeah. somebody else. So, exactly. so the walls, the walls of Constantinople are a great wonder. Um, they they are impregnable, but there are obviously all kinds of churches and monasteries, you know, as as in uh, England, that are kind of lying exposed. And the Vikings have all kind of fun with them, don't they? They um they use monks as for archery practice. Yeah, and they, they, do they all... nail hats on to the heads of priests and Very all kinds form. of badinage. Very <laughs> so we have a question from, um, would you believe, Tom, we've got a question from Neville Chamberlain. Uh, Neville Chamberlain says, were there any attempts by the Vikings to take over Byzantium in the same way they tried with England and Ireland? Neville, of course, his reaction would no doubt be to, to, um, <laughs> to appease a faraway away country of yeah, which, which we know we nothing. Know nothing. Um, and my answer to that would be, it's completely implausible they would ever take over yeah. constantinople there's, I mean, there's never... one of them isn't there who nails his shield to the gates of constantinople as a kind of gesture of contempt because he obviously sees the walls as a kind of cheat yeah but he knows that, that they're never going to break in i mean it's like saying you know uh, will paraguay ever defeat the united states and conquer its territory i mean it's just not it's not a plausible matchup um i think I mean, so so miklagard the great city it's it's constantinople comes to kind of shimmer in the imaginings of all the Vikings so much that essentially the, the Asgard, the city of the gods, comes to be equated with it. Yeah. So that when they imagine what Odin's halls look like, they imagine it looking very like the golden city of Caesar. Don't they Don't they also, Tom, um, there are some people who think that when they talk about Asgard or they talk about Valhalla, that images of Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom, um, this yeah. incredible building, the biggest building in the Western world, I guess, at this point. Um, which we'll come to. Yeah. That, that it plays they an important are, part in this story. The gold, the mosaics, yeah. the just the sort of – that that creates a lot of the images of – because the images that we have of Valhalla, of Asgard, are all, all come later, don't they? They're all centuries yeah. after this. And, and, anyway. and seem to kind of echo Constantinople. And I think, exactly. I think the other difference so, – so there's no prospect of them capturing Constantinople. But I think also what what the Byzantine Empire can exert, which England or Ireland or or even the, the Frankish Empire can't do, is to kind of generate this incredible cultural cringe, because they, you know, every so often they're allowed, you know, they, they, they um, it's actually with Constantine the Seventh, isn't it, who we mentioned uh, in the, the the previous episode, the emperor who describes this uh, the, the rapids that the yeah. uh, that the Rus have to negotiate, um, and he kind of concludes a treaty that specifies you know where they what, what they can trade when they can trade how they have to behave when they come and they're kind of bringing in their walrus tusks and their narwhal <laughs> tusks and their amber and their beeswax and all kinds of stuff um and they're also providing for uh what becomes very famous uh a guard of what are called varangians yeah and and the varangian a, a, a var is a vow it's kind of the oath takers would that be the, the oath takers and so they 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 come to provide the emperor with his guard and so the links but essentially the kievan rus start to to be absorbed into the kind of the cultural tractor beam of byzantine culture well that's where i would say tom i'm sure you i don't think this is a controversial view at all that's a, that's the point at which they 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 stop being the Scandinavians who are known as the Rus, and they start becoming the ancestors of, of yeah, of Ukraine and Russia. Or, yeah, because they're yeah. brought in, they're, they're brought into the world of orthodoxy, of Byzantine church architecture, 
of all those kind. They're, they're they're beginning to kind of contract marriage alliances and trade deals and all this sort of stuff. And that brings them, you know, what do they care about? What's going on in Norway? I mean, yeah, yeah, and and so. Um... So, so by the mid 10th century, you get the, fir- the, the first ruler of Kiev. Um, I'm going to have a go at this. Sviatoslav. Uh, so he's the first ruler to have um, a Slavic name. A Slavic name. But before him, you've had various rulers who have more obviously Norse names. So we had uh, we had um, uh, Ask Golden Deer with the guys yeah. who seized Kiev. But then that gets seized from them by um, a guy called Oleg. That's right. Who is the guardian of Rurik's son, Igor, yeah. supposedly. So Rurik is definitely Scandinavian. And Oleg is also definitely Scandinavian because Oleg, which we always think of as a Russian name, is actually Helgi, I think. Yeah. Just like Olga is is Helga. So Helgi, or as we call him, Oleg, he's the guardian. That's right. He's the guardian of Igor. And Oleg is a very impressive man, generally. He takes over Kiev. He seizes it from Asgold and Deer. He leads another siege of Constantinople and gets a, a, a ton of money from sort of Dane. So this is your parallel with the West, actually. He gets basically Danegeld. Yeah. from um, the sort of Byzantine authorities in 904. But he has a most – they have very good deaths, the um, the Grand Princes of Kiev. <laughs> so he has a, a, a very interesting death. He has it, He's been told, Oleg, that um, his favorite horse will be the cause of his death. So do you know what um, do you know what Oleg does, Tom? Tell me. He sends the horse away. He says, you know, I don't want to kill it. But because it's my favorite horse, but send it away and look after it, and I'll never have any dealings with it again. And after four years, in the year nine fourteen, he um, he goes to see, he goes to visit the horse, and because um, he misses it so badly, it's so sad. He goes to visit the horse at the stables, and he's told by the stable hands, "Well, the horse is dead." And he says, ha, 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 "You know, cheated those fate. Ast- those astrologers were absolute muppets. You know, I, I I've cheated death exactly." And he says, um, "Bring to, to show my contempt for these these soothsayers. Bring me the skull of the horse." So they bring him the horse's skull, and um, he he stamps on it. He said, "He's shouting, um, the horse is dead, but I am still alive. I was supposed to receive my death from this skull." And he stamps on the horse, on the horse's skull. And at that point, a snake crawls out from the horse's skull, bites him, and he dies. There you go. So the very act of defying the um, yeah. the prophecy is what kills him. But yeah, so, so he was guardian for Igor. Yeah, so Igor then is um, so Igor then takes over. Igor has uh, an even better death. He, yeah, he has a very unfortunate death, doesn't he? So so Igor is Igor is the guy who negotiates the treaty with Constantine the Seventh because he, he's attacked them and been seen off with Greek fire, hasn't he? Is yes, that he where has. they first yeah. use Greek fire? Yeah. Uh, which is what? Which is he, he, well, he twice I mean, he does besiege Constantinople. He doesn't just attack, you know, with ships. He he actually tries to take the city twice. Yeah, um, and he basically he's a very very kind of expansionist guy. So he's also um, it, it's um, in his reign that they all go off and and um, plunder all the kind of Muslim cities on the Caspian Sea. Oh yes, that's right. Um, they go to Azerbaijan, don't they? they go Incredible. to Azerbaijan. So he's he's all over the place. I mean, he's he's uh, he's very keen on. Um, kicking sand in people's face yeah and one of the people that he he kicks sand in uh the face of is a, a people called the drevlians yeah or slavic people and they capture him they pull down two birch trees and they tie him to the ends of these two trees and then they let the two birch trees go so he goes <laughs> and he gets split in two and that's the oh, end of him gosh however 
This is not a sensible thing to have done. It's now, probably not true, actually, coming Dominic. Cent- Dominic. It's not true, that story. Dominic, now, <laughs> center stage comes possibly the most interesting of all the rulers of Kiev, who is um, the, the wife of Igor and the mother of Sviatoslav, as he'll become, who will you know, become this, this, this ruler. But she is ruling as, as uh, regent, Olga, Helga. Yeah. She's very, you've got a bit of a torn dress for Olga, I think. I really have. <laughs> I really have. She's, she's kind of the Athelflaed of the East. But she's uh, much more. She, um, she's very robust in yeah. her approach to the Drevlians. Yeah. So, so they're, so they're basically, so the, they're, they're Slavs, aren't they? They're the tree people because Derevo is tree in Russian. So presumably that's where the story of the, uh, the trees comes The birch trees. From. But also apparently from. the chronicler was ripping off, um, Theseus. Yeah, D- Diodorus or some Greek. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, but who so cares? like a lot of these stories, <laughs> like, like basically everything in this podcast, possibly, possibly didn't happen. <laughs> so, so, so the Drevlians are obviously a bit nervous <laughs> at, at whether um, you know Olga is going to be, you know, what's her reaction going to be. So they send um, a, an embassy to her, and uh, she puts them on a ship and buries them alive. Yeah, well, they've they, you know what they send the embassy saying, "Would you like to marry yeah. our leader, Prince Mal?" <laughs> uh, which is a which is an extraordinary thing to do. The way they've treated her previous husband, yeah, she's foolish. She buries them alive, doesn't she? Put the throws them ship. in a pit. So a, a bit like the, we we had Ibn Fadlan's account of the uh, the ship burial. Yeah, she seems to have done that, but they were alive. Um, and I but, think she kind of taunts them as the soil is being flooded. But then over that's them. just the first of because she yes she, she is she has three revenges, doesn't she? So another they, they then send another embassy because the first embassy hasn't returned. Yeah, I mean, it's so stupid. What happened to those guys? <laughs> you know, we'll send well, another embassy. Let's send another one. <laughs> so so Olga burns them alive. That's right in the bathhouse. She in says, bath "Go and house. have a wash." Yeah. <laughs> so so obviously their standards of hygiene have improved by this point. Yeah, clearly. Um. And then she goes and besieges the city where Igor was killed. And the story is, is that she besieges them for a year. And finally, she, she accepts that she's not going to capture it. So she, um, she negotiates a treaty with them and demands a kind of, um, you know, a, a very small tribute just as a kind of sign of their submission. And she demands three sparrows and Dominic, three pigeons. And you've been mocking the idea that we're going to be doing a podcast on pigeons. But this is a kind of interesting example of how pigeons have played an important role in world history. I think you're underestimating the number of sparrows she asks for. I think it, she asks for three sparrows from each household. Yeah, so each household have to give yeah. her a tribute. Not, of, from the, of, not from the city, generally. No, 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 no yes. So, so each, each household has to give a tribute of three, three sparrows and three pigeons. And they do this, and she then sets them on fire. They dive bomb the city. It bursts into flames. She bursts in and kills everybody. It's a great story. Do you think that happened, Dom? <laughs> I mean, well, do you think that's well, a, a plausible? <laughs> well, well, there's a story uh, that, that this happened in um, uh, during the war of Simon de Montfort against Henry the Third. The whole sparrow carry on again. Uh, th- there was a cock, right? That they 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 set, they set fire to London. I with a, think with a burning cock. I I, um, I think obviously this is all from the Russian primary chronicle, isn't it? So, which I think is so clearly based on kind of previous models. Um, but I think it's a good story, so let's not question it. Let's assume it definitely. Okay, happened. so 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 Olga robust in her approach to um, the murderers of her husband, but, but also the a twist saint. is a yes. saint. <laughs> yes, so she, so she um, and it's again a sign of the the, the growing influence of, of Byzantine culture and civilization that she converts to Christianity and and gets um, 
the the baptismal name of Helena, which was the uh, the name of the mother of Constantine, who'd founded Constantinople. Um, and uh, her son doesn't convert, but she's allowed to, to you know, serve as a patron of Christianity in Kiev. So she goes to Constantinople, does she, to talk to Constantine the Seventh, the guy who wrote the manual Porphyrogenitus. Uh, and he, there's some talk of them marrying, but and they don't marry, but she converts, and she comes back with a load of vases. It's said in the uh, chronicle, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's interesting because, and this is one of those things that kind of makes a mockery of our attempts to fix labels on on these people, because she is, as you say, a Christian, but her son Sviatoslav, he is still a uh, rampaging a, pagan. A pagan. She has a Scandinavian name, Helga. He has a Slavic name. Um, but there's no sense that this is a kind of contradiction or that this is no. some problem that needs to be resolved. It's just, you know, the, the sort of the flux and, and mess of how things are. Yep. And, and he, um, he, he, he like, like his dad is a great conqueror. So he knocks out the Khazars. Well, he's one of the first, he's the first of these people we have a physical description of a genuine physical description made by, um, who is it? By one of the Byzantines. Uh, Leo the Deacon. He says he's a moderate height. He's got a snub nose. Uh, he's got a sort of bushy moustache and a shaved head, but a lock of hair that hangs down on one side. That's right. He kept, yes, kind of hanging down his side, isn't it? He had an rather angry and savage appearance. You, you're <laughs> telling course. me. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's got a gold earring with two pearls and a red gemstone. His clothing was white, no different from that of his companions, except in cleanliness. So he's well turned out, despite his savage appearance. And yeah, sorry, Tom, I interrupted you. He 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 wipes the floor with the Khazars, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Uh, and is he the father of, um, well, Vladimir is Russian, Vladimir, I gather, if you're Ukrainian. Is he is, right? yeah. Um, but but again, a name that people think possibly has sort of Norse Germanic roots, and it could have been Vald Valdemar, um, mm. some kind of Norse name. But yeah, he. So he attacks the Bulgars, he attacks the Khazars. I mean, you're saying that Igor was expansionist. Sviatoslav is very expansionist. Vladimir. He fights absolutely. Vladimir. Yeah. No, Sviatoslav. Oh, yes, yes. He's very expansionist. But he has an interesting death too, Tom. They, none of them die safely in their, quietly in their bed. Do you know what happens to him? Tell me. Uh, he has gone and attacked uh, Constantinople again. As you um, do. As you do. I mean, presumably, I think they're attacking Constantinople to get better trade. They're like Lord Frost. He's yes. obviously a, a listener to the to the show, and presumably listening to the show an awful lot now that he's left his uh, got more time Brexit. I'm surprised he, I'm disappointed he hasn't been sending in more of those excellent Danish themed questions. Um, but yeah, that they're they're presumably doing it to get tribute and to get you know money and better trade negotiations and stuff. But he's gone and attacked the Constantinople. It didn't really work out. He comes back and he ends up being ambushed at the rapids on the River Dnieper. By our old friends, the Pechenegs. Um, <laughs> um, and do you know what they do to him? No, tell me. They uh, cut his head off. They um, plate it with gold and they use it as a drinking vessel. Oh, that's so predictable. It, it, what, that's kind it's, of very, it's like, that's early medieval doing Balkan, that. Balkan they're always doing formulaic that. behavior. I think tying to a tree and, you know, ripping them in half is much more creative. Okay, fair enough. Even if it didn't happen. Yeah, even if it didn't happen. So anyway, he he has multiple sons. They all fight each other, and the winner is um, Vladimir. Vla yeah, 
Volody- well, it's interesting, actually, Tom, because almost every book on this calls him Vladimir, which is Russian. But, but I, I've been told off by Ukrainians for, for calling him Vladimir. Agreed. So Vladimir. Uh, if you look at Sergei Ploky's book on the history of Ukraine, he calls him Volodymyr. Yeah. And it's a bit like we've we've talked about Kiev, you know, and in our minds, no doubt, because we're born in the 70s, that word is spelt K-I-E-V, not K-Y-I-V. So at this point, we're getting more and more into the kind of territory where everything is contested between Russian and Ukrainian yeah. But what isn't contested is the absolute key significance of his reign, because it's in his reign yeah. that the Ukrainians, the Rus, become Christian. You call them Ukrainians? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, the Rus. The Rus. Okay. Please direct all your complaints to Tom Holland, <laughs> yeah. not to me. Cape Loft, the Rus, the Russians, <laughs> the Ukrainians, whatever. So, Tom, tell us, because his conversion to Christianity is a great tale in itself, isn't it? Well... We've been talking about how so much of this material has a kind of folkloric dimension to it. Yeah. Uh, and in the previous episode, we talked about the Khazars, about how, um, you know, they, they can't decide whether to become Christian or Jewish or Muslim. And there's a very similar story told about Vladimir. He's in a world surrounded by worshippers of a single God, which, which should he convert to? Yeah. And so he, he sends emissaries to, uh, to the Muslim world, to the caliphate, uh, and they report back and say, well, you'd have to give up drink. So that's an absolute no-no. And he sends them to the, uh, the lands of the Franks, and they report back and say, yeah, it's all right, but the cathedrals aren't great. Uh, and then he sends them to um, Constantinople, and they uh, go to Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral and they come back and they report in awed terms we knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth for on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty we only know that god dwells there among men we cannot forget that beauty and so this persuades Vladimir that he should go with with orthodox christianity the christianity of of constantinople now that story is obviously completely true not true Oh, Tom, don't say that. Because <laughs> those are the most famous foundational lines. I know. At the, at the center of kind of Russian, Belarusian. But there are two obvious Ukrainian reasons why they're not true. Go on. The first is that they're, they're very familiar with Constantinople. Yeah, because you know, they bit, don't need to yeah. send emissaries out yeah. <laughs> to report back on what Hagia Sophia is like. They've, they've been there. They know that. Um, and the other is that um, this is very geopolitically determined. Course. they're choosing a superpower right they're choosing, they're choosing a, a superpower yeah but tom i'm gutted that you missed out um that they also went to visit the bulgars on the volga and do you know what they said when they came back from uh, the volga when we journeyed among the bulgars we beheld how they worship in their temple called a mosque while they stand on girt the bulgar bows sits down looks hither and thither like one possessed <laughs> and there is no happiness among them but instead only <laughs> only sorrow <laughs> and and a dreadful stench <laughs> That's not. You wouldn't choose that religion, would you? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't go for that one. <laughs> not the stench. Um, so, uh, apologies to any. Uh, well, Bulgarians and Bulgars now. Bulgarians, Muslims. Yeah. Um, but you get, you get, you know. I mean, the great incense in Hagia Sophia. No so, stench there. Very beautiful. So he's um, obviously choosing it as power politics, isn't he? Um, well, and the Byzantines are as well because they offer Vladimir something that no barbarian leader has ever been offered before by Byzantine emperor. And that is marriage into the imperial family in the form of, of the emperor's um, Basil II's sister, Anna. Yeah, she's not happy, is she? She's not happy <laughs> well, at all. 
she apparently um, is very cr- is very cross about it, and there's some sort of breakdown in negotiations because he has to actually attack uh, the Crimea in order. Well, to that's where it all happens, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so the Crimea, which is obviously uh, very, you know, it's in the, the the crosshairs of current politics. Um, the Crimea matters um, to both Ukrainians and Russians today because it's where um, Vladimir is baptized and then marries uh, marries Anna. Yeah, and he has a weird thing where he he has a, in the at the sort of at the baptism he has all the old idols cast down. And he ties, there's an idol of somebody called Perron, who was made of wood and had a golden moustache. And he's tied to a horse's tail and dragged down a hill. And then Volodymyr gets 12 men to beat him with cudgels as a sort of sign, you know, I'm rejecting the old gods and embracing a new one. Um, But it's also, I mean, obviously it's a two-way process, isn't it? Because as you said, the, the Varangian guard... It's, it's it's not Volodymyr who sends the Varangian the big the big contingent that become the Varangian guard to Constantinople because because that's part of the treaty with uh, with Basil yeah yeah Basil will get what I, I, you would assume wouldn't you that they must have had Varangian mercenaries in their army before they had the official the official guard that Harold Hardrada ends up being the commander so Harold Hardrada is is. I mean, in a way, he's the kind of the end of the story, the end point of the story, isn't he? He is. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll we'll talk um, Harold Hardrada and, uh, and and really the, the end of the Viking Age. Okay. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are reaching the end of the Viking Age, which we've told entirely 
through a focus on the Vikings in the East. And the, the last and most famous Viking character, I think, certainly in England, uh, to have been Eastward bound is Harold Hardrada, who we know as the man who lost the Battle of Stamford Bridge, um, but had the most extraordinary life and career before that, didn't he, Tom? He really did. And um, we've we've been focusing in the, on the first part of this episode on the, uh, the, the princes of, of Kiev, um, this kind of emergent Rus state. But all along, up in Scandinavia, you've still got kind of Viking adventurers who are treating these eastern lands as places that you can kind of retreat to if you need to. Yeah, also um, places to make money, basically, and bring back yeah. tons of silver. So Har- Har- Harold, um, Harold Sigerson, he's the, the brother of, of um, Olaf Sigerson, Olaf the Stout, who will become uh, o- Saint Olaf, the patron saint of Norway. Um, and he, he's, he's briefly been king. He messes up. He gets killed uh, and yeah. supposedly martyred. It's a battle um, called Sticklerstad, um, uh, which Harold is at, because Harold is a teenager, I think, at that yeah. battle. Isn't he? He's about 15 or so. Yeah. And he has to go into exile. And and that his and he goes and, to Novgorod. And this is Tom actually for those people who are who have found this all a bit sci-fi because it's lots of weird names and stuff. Um, their big antagonist is Knut, famous for wave turn, attempting <laughs> or not attempting to turn back waves again. Something that didn't happen. Um, Friend of the a, show, an early um, faller uh, in the rest is history World Cup of Kings. Yeah. Kings, but I think a very impressive king. I mean, a very yes. formidable king indeed. So, king of a North Sea empire. Um, he, He's basically taken over England after the end of Ethelred the Unready. Um, he's married to Emma from Normandy. And he's so it all great, connects. He's everything connects. So he's the great antagonist that basically Harold Hardrada, the young Harold Hardrada is terrified of Canute. He flees and he ends it, it, up it is. I mean, it is a Western, isn't it? It, yeah. it or, or a mafia story or a science fiction story. I mean, you can see how the, the patterns of these stories, why why it's such a kind of great setting for an epic. It is, that, absolutely. That he's absolutely. been run out of town by the, you know, the local cattle rustler. Yeah. But as a boy, basically, as a teenager, he's got, you know, such a stuff of a kind of children's story. He goes off down the river, like so many people have for, what? what is it now? 250 years. Yeah. And he ends up in Kiev, where the successor to Volodymyr, I think it is, um, Yaroslav the Wise, also known as the lame, is now um, he can be well. He can be wise and lame, couldn't you? I mean, yeah. Well, he's lame to begin with, and then he's so wise that they he gets promoted. Right, that's good. So he's upwardly mobile. In that yeah. Sense. If if he's beaten off his brother, he's upwardly mobile, but not kind of mobile. They'd had a kind of an amazing war uh, with his brother, fratricidal war, where they you know they're fighting across ice covered rivers and amazing. Yeah, the first great northern war. That's very good. So, but Harold Hardrada wasn't in that war, was he? No. So by this point, Yaroslav is the you know is the kind of the wise king, and Hardrada, who's not yet Hardrada, he's just Harold Sigurdsson, the young Harold. So he pitches up and he does. He becomes basically an enforcer for Yaroslav, doesn't he? He serves in his in his guard or whatever, and and does this. And why does he end up going further down towards Constantinople, Tom? Well, I think I think um, he is looking to get back to Norway. Yeah. That's the ultimate aim. Uh, and, you know, Kiev's all very well, but the place where you're really going to make money is Constantinople. Yeah, so he's going down there with the aim of... He needs cash. He needs cash. 
because when he so he goes down there he he makes a, a tremendous success of it uh and the the right you know the epic snorri sturluson epic at telling his, his adventures uh he fights with dragons he marries princesses he goes to the holy land he conquers sicily he is but he genuinely does some of these things, doesn't he? He really he does, does go to. Yeah, he goes to. He goes to Sicily with the Byzantine. I'm reading something here that says he's a marine. He's a marine in the Byzantine fleet with a man called uh, Georgios Maniarchis. Do you know him? Is he, mm. is he a eunuch? No, he's the brother of a eunuch, isn't he, or something like that? <laughs> of course, anyway, everyone is the brother of a eunuch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Harold plays a great trick on. Uh, on Maniarchies when they're in Sicily. Do you know about this trick? Remind me. It's an excellent trick. So they're discussing who about which who's going to get the best campsite for them and their part of the, the army. And they decide to draw lots. And Maniarchies marks his lot um, with a sort of a mark on it, or his thing, whatever they're using. And Harold says, well, can I, can I have a look at your lot so, so that I can mark mine in a, with it in a different way? And uh, Maniarchy says, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So they then put the both in a bag and um, <laughs> a man, another man takes the lot out and um, Harold takes it and he throws it in the sea. And he says, that was my lot. I'm, I've won. You know, I get the best place for my, for the, for the, <laughs> for the. <laughs> that was good fooling. <laughs> <for> the, <laughs> I haven't finished the story. He says, that was right. And, and Maniarchy says, how do I know that was yours? I mean, there's no way I can know that was yours. And Harold says, well, have a look in the bag. And Maniarchy looks in the bag and he takes out the lot and it's got his mark on it. And he says, oh, it must have been yours. But of course, Harold made the same mark on his lot as was on Maniarchy's. <laughs> the lesson of that story is that Maniarchy's is an absolute idiot. <laughs> I, no, I think it's a lesson that Harold's an absolute japester. Right. Well, a anyway. great one for the prank. Anyway, I mean, you're portraying him as a sort of Les Dawson figure, but actually... Les Dawson? He's a prankster, isn't he? I mean, I don't know. He's a joker. No, he's a great barrel. (laughs) Yeah, he's not a mother-in-law joke, man. No. uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, he slapped you on the back. But he... So your your teeth go flying out. But he then gets drawn into... He goes back to... He goes all these campaigns, goes to the Holy Land, he goes to Bulgaria, um, uh, all sorts of campaigns. He's very, very um, highly rated by the Byzantines. They make him a... I don't, Spatharo Candidatus. I'm very glad I read that out um, correctly. He's a Spatharo Candidatus, which is a very high rank for a foreigner. Um, mm-hmm. And he's got been given a pay rise and he's the commander of the palace guard and all this, that and the other. And then he gets drawn into the the power politics. Are you familiar with all these Michaels? It, it's very, yes. I mean, it's almost impossible not to get drawn into it, isn't it? When you reach a certain level. Yeah, well, this is the thing. So Michael IV is the emperor, I think. Well, he's married to the Empress Zoe, and they have all kinds of feuding. And um, at some point, basically, Harold is told by Zoe, get the guy who's been kicked out as emperor and uh, gouge his eyes out, please. Um, Mm -hmm. And he does. Mm. He he personally, he can't trust his men to do it, so he he gouges them out personally. I mean, the sense you get of Harold is that he's very much the kind of guy who, you know, guy needs to have his eyes gouged out. He's going to do it. Yeah. He's he's um he's hands on. <laughs> and when an emperor dies, Literally. the tradition is that the Varangians get to strip the imperial palace of all its gold. So Harold does that, and Harold actually is there for so long he gets to do that three times. So he's by by the time he heads back, he's so rich. He's incredibly rich. The Empress Zoe, who's in her sixties, quite fancies marrying him. 
Yeah. But she has a bad habit of murdering her husbands and gouging their eyes out. Yeah. So Harold is not keen on that. And and at some point he's locked up in a um a dungeon with a dragon, I think. Yeah, he is and he, sneak, all... he escapes. Yeah. He escapes from Constantinople. I mean as as with so much of this, you know, how much of this is true? A little bit, I think, with him, because we've got Byzantine sources. The stuff in the sagas obviously clearly quite you know the same people well, who worked on the sagas that worked on the tv series vikings basically the, the i mean the two things that are clearly true is that he comes back from constantinople with a, a formidable fighting record yeah you know he is the hard rider the hard ruler um and also that he's unbelievably rich yeah and consciously we've told his story in a quite shambolic way yeah but i have. think um i i think He's not the subject of this podcast. He's just an but incidental he's the character. But he's, he's the so last he of the Vikings, isn't he? So we yeah. can talk, we, you know, he, he's, he's got this money basically so that he can then get together a, a large army uh, and go and get back the throne of Norway, which is what he does. Which is basically in the long run, there's a lot of carry on with his brother, is it Magnus, his half-brother? They split the kingdom and Magnus dies and Harold becomes a very, very fierce and ruthless king of Norway, hence the name Hard rider, hard ruler. I mean, the only thing about that is, you know, is that a career peak? Because would you rather be the captain of the guard in Constantinople or the king of Norway? I'd rather be king of Norway. Would you? Yeah. Because in Constantinople, you're surrounded by predatory empresses and eunuchs. Eunuchs and, yeah. But I think in Constantinople, the weather is better. The food's a hell of a lot better. There's more money. Everything is nicer. No, but but, but you're not. The whole thing is to have your own. Yeah, your own right. land. Yeah, I suppose it is. You're right. Um, but and you have a, you have a <laughs> you have a slave's attitude to life. <laughs> Whereas if you're a, you know a, who are you ventriloquizing there, <laughs> Harold Hardrada. Okay. I, think, I have the spirit of a Viking. Right. I think Harold, you should. Uh, you have the spirit of a eunuch. <laughs> Thanks. I'll remember that. <laughs> I think Harold Hardrada. Well, you know, truth hurts. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely betrays yourself. Well, man. let's see what happens to Howard Hardrada, Tom. <laughs> well, he dies, but yeah. he's, you know, hero's death. So that's the perfect thing, isn't it? That that Harold Hardrada dies ten sixty six, the year that basically, you know, traditionally it's it's the kind of the, the the quietest of the Viking Age, and he is is a perfect figure to to, to bring it to an end because he's a, di- a guy who dies in England, like so many Viking adventurers before him. Yeah. But he's made his name, he's made his money in the East. Yeah. And also because his career kind of sums up all the – he's li- he in some ways he's quite a sort of out-of-time figure, isn't he? I mean, he's, these places they- are becoming kingdoms. Yeah. You know, they are becoming more settled, uh, slightly more ordered, I suppose. They are Christian now rather than pagan. And of course, with 1066, the Anglo-Saxon nobility go off and replace the Scandinavians as the Varangians. They do. So they actually, um, the irony is that actually people who could have conceivably fought on opposite sides at the Battle of Stamford Bridge could well end up serving five years later but I, I in think, the same army for the Emperor Constantinople. I mean, I think that's that part of the fascination of this whole subject of the Vikings in the East is that sense of... Um, Oh, Vikings and Romans, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of people out of time running up with one another or, or, or Vikings, you know, in, uh, in the Caspian Sea. Um, it does have that kind of slight element of fantasy about well, it. Well, that's why, for example, Michael Crichton uh, wrote a book called the, the Death Eaters or something like that. I can't remember. Something, the Eaters of Light or the Eaters of something like that about um, 
with Ibn Fadlan as a character. And that was later adapted for the cinema as The 13th Warrior, I think. And Rosemary Sutcliffe has written about it. And Henry Treese. Henry Treese, yeah, the road to Mickligard. Exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's a permanent, it's exactly as you say, it's got a slight science fiction quality to it. And that it's Arabs, Romans, Vikings, all kind of. All mixed up. All mixed up, exactly. And I think that's one way, even now, when we mentioned to people we could do this as a subject, you could see that people are kind of excited about it because it's, it's the ultimate exotic adventure story, I think. Yeah. And, and um, as we said right at the beginning of the first episode, which seems a very long time ago, um, it, it's also very, very politically sensitive. Um, and, and yet, I, I mean, Tom, obviously there is no answer to that Russian-Ukrainian question with this. I mean, it obviously forms it's, – it, it's the foundational moment of both countries' history books. There are statues of these characters in Ukraine and in Russia, understandably. There's a statue of Vladimir in, uh, in London. Is there? Yeah. Um, why? Just down from Notting Hill. I is it outside a church there. or something? It must be something to do with that, yeah. Um, I mean, you can completely Unexpected. understand why they both lay claim. And and obviously, I'm not going to, you know, be mad to sort of pick sides in this sort of, um, in the, in the, in the sort of political debate. We're not a political podcast, but they both clearly do, they, they do have different histories, Russia and Ukraine, but they come from the same place. I think yeah. that's fair to say. Um, yeah. Anyway, well, right, we're just wittering now. Great stuff. Um, this has been a, a podcast devoted to uh, people going to the sea, uh, taking to the water, uh, trading, um, stabbing each other in the back. And our next episode, by coincidence, is going to be on smuggling. Perfect link, Tom. Well done. So we will see you then. Yeah, we'll see you for smugglers next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.